Hello and welcome to Season Goals, Episode 3. Today we are talking about some cooking fundamentals. My guest is professional personal chef and caterer Emmett Moeller. Emmett is a graduate of the Natural Gourmet Institute in New York and has been cooking professionally for six years. His focus is on personal food delivery to clients with special diets that is health supportive and plant forward. We talk grains, vegetables, spices, eggs, fish, tofu, oils, and outside resources to take your skills in the kitchen that bit further. Hope you find these tips and tricks to cooking some key foods helpful to support your confidence in the kitchen and ultimately performance in your sport. I've timestamped the various foods in the episode description, so if you're particularly interested in one subject, you can find it easier. Thank you for tuning in. Enjoy. Okay, Emmett, we are recording. Great. Yeah, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. How are, uh, how's it going in, in upstate New York over there? It's going as well as can be expected. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> things are fine. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I do appreciate you taking taking the time today to uh, to talk to me and and pass on, um, you know, your knowledge that you have as a uh, as a chef um, to to our student athletes here and 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 any athlete that may be that may be listening. So um, yeah, much appreciated. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, I thought, you know, I think it's really valuable to, to speak to someone, um, such as yourself, uh, because, you know, as a, as a sports nutritionist, I mean, we are constantly, um, recommending kind of different quantities of proteins, carbohydrates, and fats, you know, to support daily training. And then we really focus on it from a performance perspective when it comes to things like match day minus one and match day and specifically around carbohydrate loading, uh, if, Mm -hmm. if it's, you know, specific to that sport. Um, but I think one thing that we may overlook as practitioners is then starting to think about the actual skill set that, uh, that an athlete may have or may be developing into. And so, you know, talking to someone like you, I think is really valuable because this gives us an insight into how do we actually prepare some of these key foods and how can athletes then develop those skills to support themselves in a way to support training, to enhance performance, um, you know, if they're at a point in their development where maybe they don't have the same resources that an athlete may if they were part of a professional club, for example. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, I guess just kind of diving right into it, I mean, let's talk about carbohydrate and, and let's talk about some of those main staples that aren't bread. So when mm-hmm. I think about, you know, carbohydrate, particularly grains, we want to talk about oats, we want to talk about rice, but how do we make how do we make oats taste good? How do we take them beyond the microwave? How do we make a fluffy pot of rice and how can we make a decent bowl of quinoa? Mhm. Yeah, I mean to speak to what you were saying at the beginning, I think it's one of the most empowering things for people to be able to like feed themselves and feed themselves well um and in a way that supports their goals, right? Especially around being an athlete. Um so yeah, and cooking can be like daunting, but it's also um food is good when it's prepared a lot of different ways. And so my experience has been that experimentation is really good and that you're not maybe going to get it right every time, but it will be edible and that that's important. Um, so that you keep going back, you keep trying to get the perfect pot of rice um, and that it will get better. You'll learn as you go for sure. Um, so yeah. And you know, grains are a really great thing that you can cook in quantity and throw in the fridge. Um, I think, you know, like you can reheat rice uh, in a little tiny bit of oil and have a fried rice. You could throw veggies in there with it. Um, I think the biggest challenge that people run into with rice in particular is that it often is like really sticky or the bottom is really burned. Um, so I've I've had that problem myself. Yeah. It's, and it's, uh, you know, I will say like, I got out of culinary school and I was like, why can I still not make a pot of rice correctly? But it's actually not that hard. I was overthinking it. So, um, with rice, both white and brown, the ratio of water to rice is two to one. So if you have a half a cup of dry rice, you're going to use a cup of water to cook it in. Um, one tip that I have is that cooking just a half a cup of rice is harder than cooking a cup of rice uh, because it's more likely to scorch. You're more likely to evaporate all the water out of the pot. 
Um, so go ahead and put two cups of water in your pot, bring it to a boil. Um, and then once it's boiling, you put in a good pinch of salt, uh, which the rice is going to absorb. That gives it flavor. And then drop your rice into the water, lower the heat all the way as low as you can get it, and put a tight-fitting lid on the pot. Um, so for brown rice, you're going to let it cook for 40 minutes. Just like that, no peeking. Don't open the lid because <laughs> it actually messes it up. Um, and just trust that it's on super low and that it's doing it the right thing. Uh, yeah, 40 minutes, turn off the heat and then let it steam with the lid on for five minutes, just sitting. So you do nothing. You just turn off the burner and leave it for five minutes. Um, and that helps it absorb any last bits of water that might still be in there. Um, if you're cooking white rice, the time is just less. So you'll do the exact same process, but you'll cook it for 18 minutes and then shut it off and steam it for another five. Um, one thing that is interesting that I was fascinated to learn when I first started cooking professionally is that if you start any grain in cold water on the stove, so this would be that you put the grain in cold water, put it on the stove, turn on the burner and heat it from there, that the grain is going to be much stickier and clumpier than if you start with hot water. So boiling the water first and then adding the grain. Got it. Okay. Um, that is true for oats as well. Um, yeah, that's I think that's a fantastic piece of advice because that's um, that's one thing where you can kind of it's a it's a simple it's a simple switch to make just just wait till the water's boiling but it can completely change the outcome of your of your meal of your staple. Absolutely, and nobody really likes gluey rice unless you're going for sushi, and that's a whole other story. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, quinoa is one that I think people can be intimidated by there are actually a number of different ways you can cook quinoa um you know one would be similar to the steaming method that i just talked about that we did on the rice but what i like to do with my quinoa actually is to bring a pot of water to a boil add some salt and then throw the quinoa in um, as if it were pasta uh, and let it do a gentle simmer so you don't want it like boiling you know a bonanza of boiling <laughs> but you but Simmer it for, I think it's usually around, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes of, of simmering. And you can tell that it's done because it gets that little spiral, that little germ comes out of the seed. Um, uh, not a seed, but you know what I mean, out of yes. the grain. Yes. And uh, <laughs> not a scientist, never yeah. said that's what I do. Um, but yeah, and, and so you, you can tell that it's done. By looking at it, um, it will op the, the quinoa grain will open up a little bit and will look fluffier than it was. Um, you can also take a couple little pieces out of the water and bite them. And that's something I always recommend is if it's something that is cooking actively that you're looking at and you're not sure if it's done or if it's right or seasoned right, taste it. Got it. Is there, so, yeah. yeah. What about, what about the, I mean, you said you would like to cook it like pasta. So is it, does the water ratio not matter and then you drain it? Or what is, is there a specific water ratio for, for quinoa? Good question. Yeah, I wasn't specific in that. I, I prefer not to measure my water for quinoa because sometimes I feel lazy. And so I throw a giant amount of water into a big pot and then I dump the quinoa into that. So yeah, when you're done with it, when it's cooked the way you want it to be cooked, you drain it of the water like you would pasta. Okay. Um, and then it's ready to go. Okay. All right, those are some solid tips on on grains. Okay, cool, <laughs> cool. Um, well, let's talk about let's talk about some other carbohydrates. Then, I mean, let's talk about let's talk about vegetables, right? And I think there's this idea of how do we prepare vegetables in a way that can make them appetizing and go beyond this idea of you know, well, I put raw broccoli into hummus or raw carrots into hummus. So, you know, what's like a secret to making like decent Brussels sprouts and, or, or really any vegetable. And, and can we, can we batch cook these and, and save these for longer? How do they keep in the fridge? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, my answer to all of that is salt, uh, salt and a little bit of fat. Um, the fat is less important than the salt, but you know, the thing about salt is that it helps us taste what the vegetable actually tastes like. So you're not getting a taste of salt, you're getting a taste of what the vegetable is. Um, there's something about our bodies that requires salt to fully taste the, the spectrum of flavor. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I'm a personal chef, I have private clients that I cook for, and I'll bring them, you know, roasted butternut squash and 
they'll be like, what did you put? You put sugar all over that butternut squash. Like, what did you put on that squash? And I say extra virgin olive oil, salt, and pepper. And I roasted it in the oven. Um, so there's, what I'm getting at is that there's a lot of flavor in those vegetables. Um, so you don't have to feel intimidated that you need to put whatever perfect, you know, spice blend on there or that you need to like cover up the flavor. What you really want to do is enhance it. Um, and I think you can definitely batch cook vegetables. Um, some things keep better than others. My favorite thing to do is to roast a bunch of root vegetables or squash or potato. Um, I'm thinking like carrots, parsnips, beets, um, roast those and keep them in the fridge for the week. It's like a great dish that you can throw an egg on top of. Um, things that don't keep as well roasted, things like asparagus or green beans or um, more tender, uh, obviously leafy greens, you're not going to roast. Um, those won't keep as well. Uh, but there are, you can do other things to them to keep them. Um, my big tips on roasting, I think that you can Stick the oven at 400 degrees, kind of no matter what you're roasting. If you're shooting for something that's like got a little bit of brown, a little bit of crispiness, um, and is not going to take a million years. Uh, so set your oven at 400. You want to make sure that you're not crowding the pan, whatever okay. pan you're using. Um, yeah, you, you want to make sure that you've got the vegetables have enough space. I don't mean that they need to be like two inches apart. Um, but you really don't want them all shoved next to each other because what ends up happening then is that you're steaming the vegetables in the oven instead of getting that nice Maillard reaction, which is the browning that happens. Um, and the browning also is caramelization. So it brings out the sweetness in the vegetables. It's really what makes roasted vegetables delicious. Yeah. Um, so my, it's annoying because you may end up washing two pans instead of one, um, but your vegetables are going to be so good that it's worth doing it. Um, so yeah, so I would, you know, cut your vegetables into reasonable size. I mean, you can, I have roasted a cauliflower whole. You can do that, but why? It takes a long time and you have to babysit it. So instead, you know, cut the cauliflower into little florets, those little trees, same as broccoli. Mm -hmm. um, throw it on a sheet pan. That's what I like to use to roast vegetables because they're kind of the biggest thing that you can fit in your oven that's flat. Uh, and I pour some all extra virgin olive oil and a healthy pinch of salt and pepper if you like that. And then I just use my hands and I toss them all together. Um, and then I put them in the oven and I rotate the pan a couple of times, maybe like in every 10, 15 minutes. That's also not super important, but we're trying to go for even browning. Yeah. Um, and when you can put a fork in it easily, then it's done and you can take it out. Okay. Um, so the amount of time is going to really vary based on the density of the vegetable that you're roasting. Okay. Uh, you so know, there's pretty, no, that's yeah. pretty self-explanatory that part, but like potatoes take longer than asparagus, you know? Right. So. Right. Okay. Okay. So, so we shouldn't really be as caught up on the, the time as much as it is the kind of the feel, right? Like, like you said, because different vegetables are going to be, are going to have different, different time points. So it's, it is one of those things that we probably need to watch, but is there, you know, if someone is trying to do, I mean, it's not going to take five minutes, right? So like how much time would we need to budget? Like, obviously it may take longer, but what's, what could be maybe one of the, the shortest ones? Great question. Um, I find that broccoli cooks in no time at all. So if you're roasting broccoli in the oven, it takes maybe 10 minutes. Um, oh, if you're, if you're looking for because also you don't want your broccoli super soft, right? Like we want it to be crisp tender is the phrase. Um, and it's just better to eat. It feels better. It tastes better. Um, if you're roasting something that's denser, if you're doing like parsnips or carrots, for example, it's probably closer to 30 to 40 minutes. Um, potatoes actually go pretty quickly. Um, but another way that you can control how long it takes is to vary the size that you're chopping the vegetables into. So the smaller you chop them, the faster they're going to cook. Um, the bigger the piece, the longer it's going to take. Yeah. Uh, so that's a thing, you know, if you're, if you're in a rush and you want potatoes, I would, you know, maybe do a one inch dice or something like that. And it shouldn't take super long. It's perfect. Cool. Fantastic. Um, another way to do vegetables that is great for prepping kind of mostly green veggies, uh, is to blanch them, which is you know, it's kind of equivalent of boiling, but the thing about blanching is that you're 
really just, like I said, enhancing the flavor of the vegetable and preserving it. So it's not going to rot in the fridge. It's not going to um, dry out in the fridge, which often happens to fresh veggies. Um, and so to blanch, I keep using broccoli as an example, but let's just go with it. Yeah. Uh, things like broccoli, green beans are great blanched. Um, you bring up, you get a big pot of water and you put a lot of salt into it, more than you would think. Um, and you don't have to worry about that because you're not going to be drinking that water. You're, the water is just surrounding the vegetable that's going in the water. Um, and so the salt is flavoring the food, but you're not going to be consuming all of that salt. Yeah. Um, bring that up to a steady boil. Drop your broccoli in there. Um, you'll see it turns a brilliant, beautiful, bright green. Uh, and you basically don't want to cook it past the point of being that bright green. If you were to leave it in that water for a long time, it would turn brown which is gross. Nobody wants that. Uh, so, so yeah, again, broccoli, it's in the water, maybe like three minutes, four minutes tops. Um, and then you pull it out of the water and you either put it in a bowl of ice water or you run it under cold water or whatever you have available to you, which stops the cooking. So it's not going to continue to cook after you Smart. pull it out. Of yep. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that's... these are great for salads, you know, to keep that stuff around. Like you can, use it in a grain bowl and then you already have like a cooked vegetable to go in there. Um, you can put your favorite salad dressing on there. Um, with the roasted veggies, you can definitely experiment with herbs and spices if you want to get fancy. Yeah. Well, I mean, let, let's talk about that. I mean, you, you just mentioned spices. So like, are there, I would imagine that, that your, your spice cabinet is probably very wide and varied, but but what, like, are there any key spices that we should have in our kitchen that can like, that, that can take that can kind of take it to that next level? Yeah, this is a, this was a good question for me to think about. Cause I have, you're right. I have so many spices <laughs> and I was like, well, what's a, but what's useful. And I um, was getting a little caught up, but I would, I actually came up with like, I think two spices that really would bring your cooking to the next level are cumin and smoked paprika. Um, which I think smoked paprika, I think I discovered like pretty late into my life or whatever. I mean, I'm not that old, but you know, <laughs> later than I wanted to. Uh, and it's maybe not one that people are as familiar with. So like there's sweet paprika, which is delicious, but not as notable. Um, and you can find it in grocery stores. It usually comes in a little tin, uh, that says pimenton or it says smoked paprika on it. Um, that's a good one because it brings kind of like a, depth of flavor and like a meatiness to whatever you're cooking. So it it's really great on roasted vegetables. You could, you know, throw like a teaspoon of that onto the tray with the salt and the pepper and the oil um, and toss it. And it just, it just brings like a nice sort of smoky depth to it. Um, cumin is really versatile. So cumin is used in like a bunch of different types of cuisines from around the world. Um, you know, it's in a lot of Mexican food. It's also in Indian food. It's also in Middle Eastern food. Um, and again, it brings sort of like a depth and warmth to the food. Um, not, it's not spicy. Neither of those spices should bring heat. Um, and then if you're a person who really likes spice, I would say red pepper flakes are a great thing to have around. Mm -hmm. um, cayenne is dangerous because a little goes a very long way. So it's fine. If you can handle the spice and you want to go nuts with the cayenne, that's cool too. Um, so those are like the sort of freestanding spices that I thought of initially. And then there are some really great like bl spice blends um, that are around that can kind of immediately turn your food into something really interesting. One of those is a curry powder, uh, pretty, sure. sim pretty simple and very common in food co-ops and yep. hippie houses around the world. But, um, <laughs> but curry is great. You know, like you can, you could do roasted curried vegetables and they'd be delicious. Like it's, you know, it's a really great thing to, you can rub it on chicken, you can put it on salmon. Um, you can use it uh, actually as a base for a curry. Um, if you were adding coconut milk. Um, another one I thought of is berber spice, which is maybe a oh, little yeah. less people are less familiar with, but um, is an Ethiopian spice blend that often has quite a bit of heat to it. But I know that you can buy it. Um, Frontier Spice Co-op sells bottles of it. Uh, and it's a really nice blend. And again, we'll bring sort of like a, a new zest to what you're doing. Um, 
And then similarly, there's a Moroccan spice blend called Ras El Hanout. And those, that's another one that is, these are all just mixtures of other spices, but it saves you a bunch of time then. Um, and we'll kind of bring some new flavors and, and uh, horizons to your cooking, hopefully. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's fantastic. That, that Ras El Hanout spice blend, I had never heard of until I was living in the UK. And then it seemed uh-huh. like everyone was talking about it. It was like, uh, or like, you know, the chefs that I would watch on YouTube. They're like, oh, just sprinkle a little bit of this and that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and, uh, and then I would also, I would, it had completely, you know, slipped my mind. But I think you're spot on about that, that Berber spice, or mm-hmm. I, I don't know if I've just you know, ruined it. Yeah, I'm not sure either. <laughs> um, but that, uh, I would, yeah, I'd absolutely, that, that blend is a really fantastic one too. Very like, I'm not sure if I'm explaining it correctly, but yeah, the, the depth of it is like, it's, it's good. So it's for super anyone, complex. Yeah. Yes. It's like a really complex set of spices. Yeah. So if anyone out there who is, who hasn't heard of that, if you can find it in your store or, or order it online, I would say it's mm-hmm. well worth your time for that. Yeah. Yeah. And those curry powder you'll find pretty much anywhere, really good curry powder. It's a different story, but you can get a pretty decent curry blend at most grocery stores. Um, something like Berber spice or Ras El Hanout, you might need to find a, a health food store or a specialty food store, but they're not incredibly expensive. Those blends, you just need to find a place that has them in stock. Um, and online is a great option, as you yeah. mentioned. Cool, cool. Okay, good. Okay, well, so we covered. I think we covered carbohydrates pretty well. So we have we have we have grains, and we talked about vegetables. We mentioned how we can kind of spice those up with spices or herb blends. So now I kind of want to move on to protein a little bit. And I think one super versatile one is eggs, but there's, there's many ways to cook them. And so, you know, we can, we can poach it, we can scramble, we can hard boil, but all of those can go pretty south pretty fast if we don't know what we're doing. So any tips around, around eggs and, and, and different preparations of them? Yeah, totally. Eggs are amazing. I think they're just like a, such a fascinating and delicious food. And so I've spent a lot of time messing around with how to cook eggs. Um, so I'm going to go in backwards order from how you just listed cool. the techniques. I'm going to do hard boiled into scramble into poached okay. uh, because it feels like the, uh, the technique level kind of increases as we go. Um, boiling eggs. If you look it up on the internet, there are 4 million ways that people say that you should do it. And everybody says that their way is absolutely the best way. Um, I'm going to say the same thing about my way, yeah. um, <laughs> well, which is only to say that this feels like the way that I do it feels like the way that you can have the most control over how the eggs turn out. There's nothing more disappointing to me than a hard boiled egg that is like um, green in the yolk because it's been boiled so hard. Uh, they, it's, it's, it's just criminal. It's not yeah. how an egg should be treated. <laughs> um, so so I personally, I love my boiled eggs to be what I think has been called jammy in the middle. Um, that is to say that the yolk is cooked and is solid, but like a tiny bit jelly in the middle. Um, it helps keep the yolk creamy. It helps keep the flavor there. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't dry out. Um, but you can do your eggs whatever way you like. Some people are really grossed out by jammy eggs. Um, so, okay, to boil an egg, get a pot of water and you bring it, you fill it with water, you bring it to a boil. One tip is that if it's, you don't like to wait for the water to boil, put a lid on the pot and that makes it boil faster. Okay. And yep. then when it's boiling, take the lid off and then you're going to put your eggs in. Uh, I like to lower them in with a spoon. Um, one thing that can happen if you if your eggs are cold and the water is hot and they hit the side of the pot, they'll crack and a little bit of the white will sort of run out into the water and it's unsightly and it can sort of mess with the way that they cook, although they're totally edible um, if that happens. But so yeah, I would get like a spoon, uh, maybe like a big cooking spoon and lower your eggs into the water and then start a timer from the moment that the eggs enter the water. 
Um, for the jammy eggs that I was talking about, I set a seven minute timer um, for a full hard boil, but not green yolk, just like a proper hard boil. Uh, it's, it's 10 minutes for you want it in the water for 10 minutes. Oh, okay. um, so either way that you're doing that, once your timer goes off, you're going to either take the eggs out of the water or dump them out of the water, whatever you want, um, into either an ice bath. So that's ice in a pot of water or a bowl of water. Or if you're lazy, which I occasionally am, I will just dump out the hot water and fill the pot with cold water from my tap. Um, and I'll kind of let it run. It's maybe not the most earth friendly moment. Um, but you know, you're basically trying to cool those eggs down as quickly as you can. Cause uh, that cause will, that will stop the cooking process. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Okay. If you just took them out of the water hot and let them sit there, they'll continue to cook and they may end up green actually, no matter what you do. Um, it also, I'm, I don't know about the science of this, but cooling them down quickly like that helps with getting the peel off. Um, which can be a real struggle. Peeling boiled eggs can be really hard. And so I always am like, let me do the things that will help it be easier. Yes. Um, so yeah, then once they're in the cold water, you let them sit there until they're pretty cool to the touch, um, you know, or ideally cool all the way through. Uh, I like to save that pot of water that I've put them into. It's a pot or a bowl um, to peel the eggs in. So another tip on peeling hold the egg in your hand, tap it gently all over the shell on the counter. So you're cracking the shell all over and then put your hand and the uh, egg back into the water and peel it under the water. So it actually helps sort of get the peel off without ripping the egg to shreds. Um, is that, is that, is that you're peeling it in the warm water or the cold water? The cold water. Cold water. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then when you're when you've cut your egg in half or whatever you want to do definitely season it it's going to be so much better if you put a little bit of salt if you put pepper you could put chili on there um but you can you can definitely cook a bunch of eggs at one time um and put them in your fridge and be like this whole section of eggs is hard-boiled eggs and they're ready for you whenever you need them um one just quick tip about that is if you're trying to boil 12 eggs at a time and they're cold and they go into the hot water. Um, it's going to take longer to boil all 12 of them because they'll lower the temperature of your water. Okay. Yeah. That's that, that was going to be my question is, is there a threshold of how many eggs we can kind of put in a pot and then still kind of hold that seven to 10 minute rule? Um, I'm not sure I know about number of eggs. I think it's like, if you notice that the water is no longer boiling, when you drop the eggs in there, start timing from when it is. Um, okay. That's, it's that's a good. little bit harder to control when you're doing bulk cooking. Um, yeah. those numbers that I said are probably for like three or four eggs at a time. Okay. That's still yeah. a respectable amount though. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and once you get that, once you get the hang of that, you feel like a superhero or I'm just a nerd, but I really, <laughs> I really feel proud of my boiled eggs. You know, when you cut into it and it's just exactly the texture you want it to be, uh, it's a beautiful thing. Absolutely. Uh, okay. Should I move on to scrambling? Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's talk about scrambling. Okay. So again, scrambling, there'll be like a million different things on the internet of how you can do it. I'll tell you the way that I do it. I find that it works really nicely and it's doesn't take a long time, which is another cool thing. If you are desperate for dinner and you have some rice and that blanched broccoli you made earlier, you can scramble up some eggs, throw them on the rice with the broccoli and you have dinner and it's great. Um, so I crack my eggs into a bowl. Um, I don't add anything but salt and pepper to the bowl. Um, and then I take a fork or a small whisk and I whisk the eggs until they're uniform. So that means no weird sections of snotty white or big chunks of yolk. Sorry to get graphic. Um, <laughs> you you so, got to have a visual. You got to have a visual. Yeah, yeah. And the whisking can be uh, enthusiastic. You don't have to beat them. But if you're kind of just sort of like moving the fork around in there, it's not going to do what you need. So you can put a little uh, little oomph into it. But cool. and all you athletes will have no problem with that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so... Once you've got the eggs all whisked up, you're going to heat a nonstick. If you have a nonstick pan, that's probably your best friend for this. Um, or a well-seasoned cast iron pan works as well. I also have stainless steel pans. 
they're like hard to clean after, but if you soak them, it's really no big deal. So whatever skillet you have is fine. Um, I put the pan over a medium high heat. And then once the pan has started to heat up, I add fat to the pan. I like to use butter, but ghee is also really delicious if you're not doing the milk solids um, or oil works fine as well. Um, once the oil or the fat that you have in there is a little bit bubbly, it doesn't have to be sizzling, just a little bit bubbly, um, dump your egg mixture into the pan and you're going to have a spatula in your hand, hopefully like a silicone, one of those like flat silicone ones or a wooden spatula would be okay. I don't recommend metal because you're going to be scraping and it's sounds bad and probably doesn't do what you need it to do. Okay, that's um, good. Worst case scenario, like a plastic spoon would be fine. It doesn't matter. Um, and you're going to scramble the egg in the pan. So you're going to move the pan around, or I'm sorry, you're going to move the spatula around the pan um, and move the eggs around the pan. And they should start to solidify right away. So you're going to see that the bottom of the eggs is solid and the top is liquid. I like to sort of fold them over themselves and like move them around the pan, gather them together with the spatula in the pan. Um, and do that until they're just set and turn off the heat. Um, so you might be like, Oh, these are still, these are raw. Like there's a little bit of kind of liquid still happening on one side of it. But if you leave the heat on, they're going to dry out so fast and get rubbery. Um, so it should be a really quick process. Um, and I take them out of the pan as quickly as I can. So have your plate ready to go or have your bowl with all your other stuff in it ready to go. The eggs can be the last thing you make. Um, but yeah, it's, I think the big, the big trick with scrambled eggs is not overcooking them. Yeah. At least I, I prefer them to be sort of fluffy and light and getting them out of the pan as quickly as you can and cooking them quickly is okay. the key to that. Yeah. Okay. So that sounds good. Cause I think, Oftentimes we just expect, you know, I don't know if that just comes from cooking things in a microwave growing up, right? But you're like, <laughs> you pull it out of the microwave and it's done, right. right? And then you're like, okay, well, it's, so you wouldn't expect to actually stop cooking or turning off, turning off your source of cooking, like turning off your heat, even if it's still looks like, oh, wait a minute, it's not finished yet, but actually it will sort of finish cooking itself even after you take it out of the, take it out of the pan. Exactly. And that's because the food itself it has heat in it already. Right. Um, and so that's called carryover cooking, um, which is that, you know, it's going to continue cooking until you eat it. Um, and so, or until it's cold, yeah, <laughs> one of the two right, options, right, right. <laughs> um, but better to just get it out of the pan and eat it right away if you can. Yeah. Okay. Okay, cool. So, all right. So now, now the tricky one, and this is actually, this is something that I was having a conversation with my first guest on about poaching eggs okay. and the challenge around poaching eggs. What should we do? <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So my first, uh, my internship out of culinary school was at this restaurant in Brooklyn called Marlowe and Sons, uh, which is a really great restaurant. And they put me on brunch and they put me on eggs for brunch. And it's a busy restaurant. There are just two people on the line. And I had to arrive at 6.30 in the morning. And the first thing I had to do was poach 75 eggs every morning. Um, and so I got pretty good at poaching eggs. Uh, although I had a lot of eggs all over my shoes, you know. And yep. uh, I, th I threw out a lot of eggs when I first started working there because I didn't know what I was doing. Um, so, you know, there's some technique. It takes practice. You get a feel for it as you do it. Um, but this is the way that I have found to tell people to do it. That seems to work really well. Um, one of the major factors is that you don't, I don't use a shallow pan. I do not poach in shallow water. Um, so you want to get the tallest pot you have, um, okay. which I'm guessing is not super tall. Right. But is like maybe a stock pot or a pasta pot. Um, fill that with water, uh, bring it to a boil, add, a big handful of salt and a glug of vinegar. So if okay. you have white vinegar um, or apple cider vinegar are probably your cheapest options for that. Um, again, I don't know the science of why that helps, but I think it does. You want to be able to smell a little bit of vinegar in the water. So that's the amount that I, you know, put it in until you can kind of smell it when you waft the water smell <laughs> into your nose. <laughs> um, and you want to then turn the heat 
down. So you don't want the water to be boiling because if you do, these are like, these eggs are just going to obliterate in the water if it's boiling. Um, so you want just bubbles kind of around the edge of the pot. Um, I like to bring it to a boil first so that I know it's hot and then uh, turn it down. Mm -hmm. um, at this point, what you're going to do is you're going to take a spoon. This is maybe the most fun part. You take a spoon, you put it in the pot and you make a tornado in the water. Um, so, you know, go one direction for, I don't know, 15 seconds. You don't have to do it for very long, but you want to get that water moving in a circle. Um, and once you've done that, you take the spoon out of the water and you gently crack your eggs into the water while the water's moving like that. Um, and what'll happen, that's, that's sort of the way that people get that torpedo shape on their poached eggs, the ones that you get at restaurants where they're smooth all the way around is because yeah. they've cooked as they've moved through this warm water. Um, and so you leave them in, you do that with however many eggs you're doing. I mean, I was doing, I think 25 eggs at a time, which is gross and weird. Um, and, uh, but you're probably doing like four and that's plenty. Poached eggs don't really hold. I don't recommend. This is something that you do kind of right before you're going to eat them. Um, leave it in the water. Don't touch it for, I usually set a timer for three minutes. And then what you're going to want to do is get a slotted spoon and gently scoop one of the eggs up to the surface of the water, out of the water, and touch it with your finger and see, is it pretty cooked? You don't want it solid. The whole beauty of poached eggs is that they have a runny yolk. Mm -hmm. um, and so you want it to be, from the outside, it will be kind of springy when you touch it. If it is like really jiggly, it's not done, put it back. Um, if it's done, pull it out and put it on whatever you're eating. Uh, again, salt will definitely help that egg taste delicious. Um, yeah, there it's a tricky process because if the water is not hot enough, the eggs will hit the bottom of the pot and stick, uh, which is not going to result in anything good. Um, and if the water is too hot, they're going to break apart. Um, so it's a really about set that, I don't know, the Netherland between boil and uh, cold. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think... I'm just kind of thinking, you know, talking about these different methods and, and, and I think a common theme that we're hearing is like, it just takes practice. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, I mean, I always think about, you know, specifically because we're, 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 we're talking to, to athletes here that, you know, the first time you swung a baseball bat is probably, you know, miles away from where you swing it now after playing for 10 years plus, you mm -hmm. know, same thing with, you know, jumping hurdles, you know? So it's like, it's, it's all part of a, a process that just takes time and practice. And the more you practice, the better you'll get. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I would just encourage anyone who's thinking, well, I can't do that. And it's like, well, if you, if you want to do it, just take the time. And yeah, just like, just like you, you may end up with eggs on your shoes and, uh, <laughs> and throwing eggs out every now and again, but it's a, it's a skill that can, that can definitely support your athletic career, you know, mm -hmm. while, while at university, but then also well beyond that too. Yeah. And, you know, people have been cooking forever and they've been cooking terribly or wonderfully and it's just it's a thing that humans just need to do um and i think it's really important not to be super hard on yourself about it so if you're you know used to having immediate success with your training um this is something different but you're nourishing your body and so if your scrambled eggs are dry like they're still scrambled eggs and the protein is still there for you and you did that thing to care for your body and that's an important task that you took on. So, you know, I know things can get really competitive when it's professional or, you know, other realms. And I always encourage people to be really gentle with themselves about food. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, I think, and not just, I think we kind of already touched on it, but not just give up if it doesn't go the, the right way the first time. Mm -hmm. Right. Totally. I mean, if, if that was your attitude towards sport, you wouldn't be where you are today. Yeah. Right? So right. it's like, and um, I mean, of course I'm biased because I'm a sports nutritionist, but I think, <laughs> you know, to really get those adaptations and that benefit from all that training you're putting in, 
you have to have the right fuel to prepare and recover for it or from Mm -hmm. it. So, um, but yeah, just like you said, if it's not perfect, it doesn't mean that the nutrition's gone. Right. Yeah. So, okay, cool. Um, okay. A bit of a segue, but, (laughs) but (laughs) important nonetheless. So I think, you know, so we talked about, we talked about different ways to cook eggs and one of, and we were talking about this, you know, I think a little over a week ago, but you know, we were talking about a meal idea that, that we both really enjoy and that's a frittata. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's eggs, it's vegetables and it can keep, but Mm -hmm. is there, you know, as, 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 as quickly as you may be able to, because I'm sure it's, it's difficult to, to just talk about, but, you know, tips for making a frittata for those of, yeah. for those people who don't know what a frittata is, can you explain it better than I can? Uh, talk us, talk us through it a little bit. Yeah, totally. Um, oh, explaining what a frittata is. I don't know yeah. if I've ever done that. Uh, a frittata is like, it's basically like, a, oh man. It's like baked eggs with a bunch of veggies in it. It traditionally has uh, milk and cheese in it, but it doesn't have to. Um, and uh, like a Spanish tortilla is not the same, but if you know what that is, it's like verging on uh, frittata. Yeah. Um, basically, it's something that you can slice up and it, it is like you could take kind of a piece of pie equivalent that is actually jam-packed with protein and veggies. Um, it's one of my favorite ways to like have portable egg breakfast. It's also really great for a dinner or a lunch. Like it, it's just a good and easy way, especially if you are on the go um, to have a nutritious and satisfying meal. Um, another really great thing about frittatas is that if you have some random vegetable scraps or leftover cooked veggies, um, you can sort of dump whatever you want into it and it will probably be delicious. So if you've got you know, a few uh, florets of that famous broccoli that I keep talking about. Um, If you've got like a potato that's just one potato and you don't know what to do with it. Um, If you've got a weird amount of parsley or like, you know, a tiny amount of spinach, uh, you can really put whatever you want in there. And it's a great way to clean out the fridge um, and to preserve things before they go bad. Uh, So yeah, the quickest it's there's some great articles on how to make frittatas i think bon appetit has a really great like do's and don'ts for frittatas um but the gist of it is that you're going to heat your oven to 350 um i it seems like you have to add some kind of milk um though it doesn't have to be dairy so i would say for 12 eggs you want to use a half a cup of milk i've used almond milk i've used coconut milk um the drinkable kind i wouldn't use a full fat coconut milk um you know, if you do eat dairy, whole milk is best. Uh, skim milk is kind of like adding water. Um, so you put 12 eggs, you break those into a bowl, you add a half a cup of, of whatever milk you want. Um, you whisk those together, kind of how I described earlier. Uh, put a good amount of salt. This is 12 eggs. So think about how much salt you might put on 12 individual eggs and put it in. Um, you can put pepper, you could put chili flake, whatever you want. Um, and then you're going to throw in your veggies. If they are cooked, you can put in whatever size you want. If they are raw, um, you want them chopped up really small. Um, I usually try to shred whatever greens I put in there with a knife. Um, they can go in raw, but you want to make sure that they're chopped really small. Um, you know, you could put tomato slices on top of it. Uh, you can you can sort of put whatever you want in there. Um, if you're a cheese fan, you can put, I don't know, probably quarter cup to a half a cup of cheese in there, um, mix it all together. And then you're going to get your nonstick skillet that you're using for your scrambled eggs. Usually, um, for a 12 egg, 12 egg frittata, I would say a 10 inch pan is probably good. Um, you're going to put it over medium high heat, coat it well with whatever fat you are using. Um, this is an instance where you might put more than you would want to consume. Um, you won't end up consuming a lot of it. It's a, you want to get a good layer of fat so that the eggs don't stick. Um, once the pan is hot and the oil is sizzling a little bit, dump your whole egg mixture in there um, and let it cook. So it's bubbling around the edges. Um, and once it looks like it's solidified a little bit right around the edges of the pan, 
take it off the heat and put it into the oven. Um, and that's where it'll finish. It usually takes, depending how much stuff you put in there, I would say 25 to 30 minutes um, to bake. You basically know it's done when you jiggle the pan and nothing moves. Um, and so then take it out of the oven. It might have puffed up a little bit because eggs do that. And then it'll sort of deflate when you take it out. That's totally fine. That's not a failure. Um, it's just what they do. Uh, you, you take it out and you're like, oh, wow, look at this huge. And then you're like, oh. Yeah, <laughs> but, um, but it it worked. It's fine. Uh, yeah, let it cool before you take it out of the pan, and then you can slice it up and stick it in your fridge. Um, that one takes practice, but not so much practice. It's really the, I think the hardest part is not having it glued to your pan. Yeah, and so but if it does glue to the pan, so what? You know, you just take the part that's not glued and you eat that. Yeah. <laughs> so that's so. So, but that is where we would want to have a like a full on skillet, like not something that has a plastic handle or anything like that. Right. Cause we're going to be putting it in the oven. Yep. Good point. I have that in my notes and I didn't say it out loud. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Definitely need to have an oven proof handle on whatever you're putting it in. Cool. Yeah. All right. I think you could probably, if you had a pie plate, that could probably work like a Pyrex one. And then you would skip the step on the stovetop. I'm just complicating things now. Yeah. Just get a pan with a handle. That's not going to melt. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> All right. No, that works. That works. All right. So we talked about breakfast. Um, we talked a little bit about lunch, thinking of like that frittata for lunch. So I want to ask you about preparing fish and particularly salmon. Um, you know, based on conversations that I've had with, with some of the student athletes that I've worked with, you know, we have this like kind of perceived higher level of difficulty uh, cooking fish compared to say, you know, chicken or turkey. Mm-hmm. So what's the deal with fish? Is it, is it harder to cook or, or is that just a a perception? Um, I don't know if it's harder to cook. I think it's like messier and smellier to cook than some other things. And so I have, you know, encountered people who avoid cooking it because of those, uh, features of fish. I also, you know, it's often more expensive. So if you've bought a piece of salmon, and you are terrified that you're going to ruin it and then can't eat it, you know, I, that's very real. Like if you've spent yeah. a little, a little bit of money on like a nice piece of salmon and then you're like, ah, oh, I ruined it. It really, it hurts. Absolutely. More, you know? Um, but I don't think that fish is that hard to cook. Um, one tip, you know, if you're, if you're into searing the salmon, just go for it. You know, um, you want to wait until it's really gotten, the skin crispy, it will release itself from the pan. Um, if you're going to do it over a high heat in a pan. Um, but I wanted to talk about slow roasting fish because it's actually, it's super clean. It is a really difficult thing to mess up. Um, especially if you're working with fattier fish like salmon. Um, and it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't get oil everywhere. It doesn't stink up the house in quite the way that, um, cooking fish in other ways might. Um, and this works for salmon, but I, it actually works for other white fish. So you could do um, halibut, which is a pretty fatty white fish, um, or cod, which I really like because it's affordable. It also cooks really quickly. Um, but there's this kind of new, I don't know if it's new, it's new to me. You can roast your fish at a low oven temperature. So you would put your oven at 300 degrees. Um, I would put the fish on in, in a oven proof skillet or on a sheet pan, um, with some oil, some salt, some pepper, you can put whatever else you want on there. Some people like to throw, uh, vegetables like on the, on the sheet pan with the fish, just be sure that they're cut very small and thin because it's not going to be in the oven for very long. Um, you could slice a lemon or an orange or a lime actually, and put those on the fish or under the fish. And that's really delicious. Um, you could put some fresh herbs on there if you have rosemary. Um, and then you put it in the oven for uh, fish like cod, halibut, or haddock, or hake. You're going to have it in for about 15 to 20 minutes. And for something like salmon, longer, probably like 25 to 30. Um, and you'll know that it's done if you sort of flake it with a fork and it's opaque throughout uh, for the white fish. For salmon, you can actually eat it. People treat it similar to red meat, so you can eat. Uh, medium rare salmon, um, and that's totally up to your preference. Some people really prefer it uh, 
cooked all the way through and some people like it a little more rare. Um, the nice thing about this method is that it, the fats are released really slowly from the fish. So they're not going to dry out because it's, it's not a high temperature cook. Um, the fat stays there and you're not going to get like a dried out piece of salmon, which is just the worst. <laughs> yeah. Well, especially like you said, if it's when it's more expensive too, and then it's right. I mean, I think, okay, so that sounds pretty, pretty easy. So oven at 300 and you put it in for, you said 15 to 20 minutes if it's not salmon, but if it mm-hmm. is salmon, maybe 25 to 30. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and then you just pull it out and then it's good to go. Yeah. You pull it out, especially with the salmon. I like to do that and just keep it in the fridge for a day or two. You know, fish doesn't keep super long, but basically you can break the fish up and use it you know, throw it in a salad the next day. Like you could eat it that night and the next day. Um, and it's like a really simple, beautiful preparation of that fish that, that up can be applied however you want. Um, you could put it on your eggs the next morning, do a little lox action, except not lox. Right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, yeah. And again, right. Fish only keeps in the fridge once it's cooked for two days, maybe three, if you're adventurous, but yeah that's the kind of thing that you'll cook it. You'll eat it in the next day or two. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, if you're going to, if you're going to put the oven on anyway, right, have it, have it for dinner, but then throw an extra piece in for, for your lunch then the next day too. So right. if you don't, yeah, you don't have to eat it warm. You can eat it cold. Yeah. yeah. You put it next to your broccoli and grains and scrambled egg and you've got like a, the most bonanza meal you've ever eaten. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Okay. I love it. I love it. Okay. So, well, let's, let's talk about, let's talk about a a vegetarian version. then. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to ask you about tofu because tofu, when you buy it just plain, it's, it's relatively affordable. Mm -hmm. Um, but you don't just want to eat it plain, you know? And so the, if, if you're not sure how to prepare tofu, it can kind of, it, just like a weird block of solid <laughs> softness, you know, and like, you know, some of the, the more expensive, like pre-baked, like um, the pre-baked ones that are already marinated. Like, I think those can taste really good, but they are pricier. Mm-hmm. So, so what about tofu? So how can we, how can we, how can we take it on and, and make sure that it's prepared correctly and prepared well? Yeah, it's a good question. Tofu is so often underwhelming um, when we cook it ourselves. Uh, a couple of tips that will hopefully help it be good. Uh, I always, pretty much always buy extra firm tofu. Um, the, there, you know, silken tofu is a very specific thing um, that's like for kind of specific applications. It's not something that's going to hold its shape at all if you try to cook it. <laughs> um, and the firm tofu is like fine, but if you're, it just crumbles, it falls apart a lot more easily. Um, if you're making a tofu scramble, firm tofu is fine. Um, if you're looking to like fry pieces of tofu or, uh, have them hold their shape in any way or grill them, extra firm is the way to go. Um, another thing that you need to do, which requires just a little bit of foresight is you, you need to press the water out of the tofu, um, which will really help make space for that tofu to uh, absorb other flavors. Um, If you think about it like it's a sponge, if it's full of water and you put more water, it's not going to absorb it, right? So we need to get that water out of there before we put a delicious, you know, coconut aminos and garlic and lime marinade in there. We need to make space for that to get absorbed. So to press the tofu, um, you take it out of its container, you put it on a plate, and then you put another plate upside down on top of it. Um, and then you put a weight on top of that plate. So not like your dumbbell weight, but like, right. you know, like <laughs> yeah, a can of beans or another bowl or something. Um, and you want to put that as centered as you can, because it will tip over as you know, it can, it can, I've had many uh, tofu press fall over as I'm doing it. But um, so, yeah, so you leave it like that. I don't know. I've pressed it anywhere from five minutes to 25 minutes. I, it's not a, huge additional step, but it really does help. Um, so then once, right. So once you've got the water out, you can go ahead and marinate it if you want, or you can fry it if you want. Um, I recently kind of came upon 
a way to get crispy tofu out of the oven, which is I'm going to talk about now. Um, obviously, you can fry it, you can do whatever to tofu. Um, but this seems like a good trick because again, like frying stovetop, it's messy, it takes forever. Uh, so this would be, you're going to get your oven to 400 degrees. Um, you've got that beautiful pressed tofu that you just worked with. Cut it into whatever shape you want to eat. Uh, you could do slices, you could do dominoes, you could do cubes. Um, you would then toss it with like a, I don't know, not a huge quantity of marinade, but something you could put soy sauce, a little bit of maple and a splash of rice vinegar. Um, you could put garlic and smoked paprika and oil. That sounds really good to me. You could put toasted sesame oil um, and a little bit of maple with that soy sauce. Um, or you could use your favorite salad dressing, to be honest. What you're looking for is some, some flavor element and a little bit of fat. Um, so toss the tofu with that and then take a tablespoon of cornstarch and toss the pieces with the cornstarch. Um, so cornstarch is a thing that makes things crispy. It also thickens things. You know, it's a starch. Um, it does a really great thing when you put it on tofu and stick it in the oven, uh, which is that you end up getting kind of the texture of a fried item without frying it. Um, so you've tossed your tofu with cornstarch. You're going to put it on an, your sheet pan. I would give it some space between the pieces um, and put it in the oven for 20 minutes, pull it out. You're going to lift the tofu off of the pan and turn it over. Some of them might be a little stuck. So a thin spatula here is helpful, but not required. Uh, yeah, flip it over, put it back in for another 20 minutes um, and then pull it out. And you should have like a pretty flavorful, pretty delicious crispy tofu. That's great. Would that, would that keep if we had some in the, some for dinner and then would, could we put it in the fridge for, for a salad the next day too? You definitely can keep it. Yeah. It's, it may lose some of that beautiful crisp, uh, sure. partly just because of the, you know, you're going to seal it in something and the moisture in there will take away that crispiness. Um, but yeah, it definitely keeps and it will be delicious and ready to use the next day. Yeah. Okay, cool. Okay. So that's, that's salmon and tofu. Mm -hmm. And I think when we were talking about that tofu prep, I mean, you mentioned a couple different oils. And so, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm kind of curious what, what oils are, are staples and then mm -hmm. what's are like, maybe like an accessory oil to have keeping in mind that, you know, try to keep fat in a like moderate, moderate intake. So we're mm -hmm. not dousing our foods with tons of oil but it can add a nice flavor element. It sounds like to, to, to certain meals. So what's, yeah. What do you think we should definitely have in our kitchen? What might be that little bit extra? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, my two big oils that I keep around are extra virgin olive oil and refined coconut oil. Um, extra virgin olive oil, you know, there are olive oils on the market that are not extra virgin and they have no flavor at all. So I would avoid, steer clear of those. Um, I'm realizing as I'm talking, I have more advice about what oils not to buy than I do no. <laughs> about what oils to buy. But uh, yeah, anything, if you can find an extra virgin olive oil, it's going to be a little bit more expensive, um, but it's going to really enhance the flavor of your food. It's, it is what is used in restaurants. It's used uh, it's pretty much the gold standard of, of oils. Um, that is not for high heat cooking. So that is not for uh, frying in uh, at a high temperature. Um, if you're going to do something like that, uh, a refined coconut oil is a good option. It has a much higher smoke point. Um, and I say refined because unrefined coconut oil tastes like coconut, which is totally delicious. So if you're using that for baking or you're using that for you know, a coconut curry or whatever, that's fine. Um, but it's kind of nice to have the, the refined around as well so that you don't make everything you cook taste like coconut. Um, some additional great oils to have around, uh, toasted sesame oil I mentioned earlier is a really, really potent and delicious oil that will bring mostly like Asian flavors uh, for stir fries, for marinades. Um, I a little goes a very long way. So you can buy a bottle of that and put a teaspoon in with 
you're going to mix it with your extra virgin olive oil in the pan and the flavor will be there. Um, but you should have that bottle of toasted sesame oil for a little while. Um, that's also, that oil is what is bringing a lot of flavor to like, uh, cold sesame noodles or, um, a lot of dishes that we eat that are popular have sesame oil in them. Um, and there's sesame oil and toasted sesame oil. Toasted sesame oil is the one with the flavor. Uh, Sesame oil is just like a neutral flavor. Um, I also try to keep avocado oil around if I can. That's another like um, really healthy fat that is, has a high smoke point. Um, You can make salad dressings with it. You can also cook in it, Um, but it's expensive and it really should be kept in the fridge uh, because it's not as stable is my understanding. And then you keep it in the fridge and then it's solid when you take it out of the fridge. So it's a little bit of a, it's a little bit annoying. Um, I do keep my toasted sesame oil in the fridge and that does not solidify. So um, that is one that can taste rancid if it is left out. Um, So try to pop that one in the fridge. And the same goes for any nut oils that you're going to keep around. So if you want hazelnut oil or walnut oil, I mean, there's a million specialty ones. I don't really think those are required, but if you're feeling fancy and you want to um, use those for finishing dishes. That's a good thing to do. They're good in vinaigrettes. Um, yeah, I think. But those, I think those are my main yeah. ones. Okay, but any of the any of the nut oils, those like those are for finishing. You don't want to cook with those. Is that right? Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, walnut and hazelnut. I think those are the main ones that people use. Um, yeah. Yeah, they're like they like add that flavor sort of at the end. Okay. Um, and again, a little goes a long way. So yeah. you don't need much of that. Okay. I would say, uh, you know, it's really common for people to just buy vegetable oil. Um, and it's really appealing because it's uh, really affordable and it's really not doing you any favors in terms of the flavor of your food. Um, and it's often coming from genetically modified uh, weird amalgamations of things. Um, canola oil is a similar one that I try to avoid. Uh, there, there are some like higher quality canolas if you're wanting to deep fry, which probably no athletes are wanting to do at this moment. Um, or or at least you're not advising them to do. Uh, so, you know, so those are, those are oils that I, that I steer pretty clear of, especially the sort of your classic like Wesson vegetable oil. Um, sunflower seed oil is okay. Safflower seed oil is less good. Um, and again, I'm thinking about where that oil is coming from and the growing practices of the plants and all that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, cool. I mean, that's, that's fantastic. I mean, I think, you know, this is definitely probably a bit of a a longer episode here, but I think (laughs) there's, there's a lot of really valuable information that, that we started off talking about how to prepare rice and quinoa um, going from vegetables and spices, different ways to prepare eggs, um, tips for preparing fish and tofu, and then finally kind of topping it off with, you know, some some tips around oils. And I think, you know, you're, you're, you're a trained professional chef. And so I think one thing that, that we've kind of noted throughout, and I think, you know, I appreciate you sharing your experience is that all of this stuff just takes time. And so for someone who's, who's brand new to working in the kitchen, working around these foods and wanting to prepare them is, you know, even someone who start, who is now a professional and is doing this for a living, it didn't just come right away. Right. Definitely I mean, not. Yeah, definitely not. It uh, takes a ton of practice. I've been cooking every day for, I guess like six or seven years uh, for since culinary school. And yeah, I'm still learning. I mean, the thing that I try to tell people is that like there is an endless amount of information about how to cook food um, and that you just learn as you go and you find the things that work for you that are convenient, that are exciting to you. Um, and yeah, that bring you some satisfaction because if you feel no satisfaction from the cooking, you're not going to want to do it. Um, so that's why trying to work in some little tips, right? Like if you bring the water to a boil first and then drop your eggs, uh, you're going to get the eggs closer to how you want them to be. And then you can feel satisfied that, you know, that tip. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, um, you know, the more, the more we learn and the more, uh, we feel skilled in the kitchen, 
um, then the better prepared we can be for recovery, performance, and um, and that's that's what we want, right? Out of uh, out of all that time that we spend on the field or in the gym. So um, that's awesome. Um, thank you so much for your time. Is there anything else that you that you want to share before we sign off? Uh, no, just try to have fun with it. You know, eat yeah. what you want, have fun while you're doing it. Yeah. Cool. And good, good luck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's great. I guess one, one, I mean, you mentioned, you mentioned this, uh, very, very briefly, uh, about bone appetite, having a good, uh, way of, I think how to poach an egg, I think, or maybe it was uh, frittata. For, for, for a frittata. Excuse yeah. me. Yeah. Yeah. Are there, are there other places that you would point our, our athletes to of other, other resources that even you as a professional like to reference every now and again? Sure. Um, yeah, I find the recipes on Bon Appetit are really nice. They've started to be really plant forward um, and they do a lot of like bold, beautiful flavors. Uh, their plates are beautiful. So it's easy to get excited about the recipe. Um, I also think Food 52 has some similar recipes that are like easy to follow and don't, some of their ingredients are obscure, but not all. Uh, and often those are sourced from home cooks, um, the recipes on food 52. So that's cool too. Um, if you responded to some of the like nerdy stuff that I was saying about like, well, we put more salt in the water that we're blanching in because it's not absorbing the salt. Um, I recommend the book, uh, salt, fat, acid, and heat by Samin Nosrat. She's amazing. There's a Netflix series that you could also watch. Um, but she really gets into the why of the ways that we cook and in a really, really understandable way. Um, and so I have, it's a cookbook, but it's also a book to read and to kind of excite or to aliven your excitement about cooking. Yeah. Uh, and again, it's like nobody wants to do something just because someone told them to. Like you want to know why you're doing it. And I think that book is a really great resource for that. And it's got great pictures. It's not like a daunting read. Um, she has a really wonderful sense of humor too. So, Cool. That's great. I love it. All right. Well, check those out if you can. Yeah. Okay, Emmett. Well, thanks again for your time. I uh, really enjoyed talking with you and um, we'll catch up soon. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Okay. All right. See ya. Bye. Bye.